Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have uh, been reading 2 Corinthians together. It is uh, a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to foster and to deepen reconciliation with the church there in Corinth. Uh, he had founded the church there. He had lived and worked there uh, for a year and a half, but after he left, his relationship with that church took a pretty bad hit. Uh, some other teachers had come in after Paul left, and they worked to undercut that church's trust in Paul as a leader and as a spiritual father. So for the last couple weeks, we have been reading that part of the letter where Paul addresses what those guys said about him, and he addresses them uh, directly. Paul uses irony, and he uses sarcasm, and he uses pointed humor in this part of the letter, which sometimes gets called the fool's speech. Uh, and it gets called the fool's speech um, because all throughout it, Paul keeps mentioning how foolish he feels uh, to even write this way to his friends. So Paul ends that part of the letter in what we're going to read together this morning. So I'll read uh, from chapter 12 for us. I'll read verses 11 through 18. I have been a fool You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now as we uh, think about this word that we've just read and heard together as we talk about it for a few minutes, that uh, what we heard in the Old Testament lesson would be true, that even as we're doing this together, that you would be uh, watching out for your sheep, that you would be uh, coming after those of us who have been scattered or who feel scattered that you'd uh, feed us all from this word and care for us. We ask that you would show us Jesus' grace more clearly and that you would change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, it, uh, it happened again last week. <laughs> On Wednesday, Federal prosecutors brought a grand jury indictment against one of our political leaders. 
It is uh, yet another in a very long list of political leaders from every part of the state and every part of the city and both sides of the political aisle who have been similarly charged. The former Speaker of the Illinois House, who had held that position for a national record of 36 years, who had held elected office for almost 50 years, was charged with racketeering, a web of schemes that the Tribune characterized on Friday as one that provided personal financial rewards to him and to his associates. Now, I'm not a federal prosecutor. <laughs> I don't know if these charges are true. I don't know if these charges will stick. But I do know, having lived here long enough just as a citizen, that it wouldn't be really surprising if it did, if they did stick. And I think that's what can be so disheartening about all of this stuff. It's a lot of things. It's tiring. It is embarrassing. It's discouraging. It is uh, tedious. But one thing that it is not, one thing that it is manifestly not, is surprising. Sometimes it feels like the natural order of things around here, doesn't it? that power uh, and position and influence would be used not for the good of the other, but for the good of the self. And of course, this is not something that is uh, restricted to politics, not by any means. It is an ancient temptation to use what we have to serve ourselves rather than others. It is an ancient temptation. It's one of the oldest in the book. It was the first card out of the deck when Satan met Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. This was the temptation. And it's a temptation that when given into has unleashed an untold amount of human misery. And if we can be honest, and I hope that we can be honest in church, <laughs> it is a temptation that lingers around the edges of all of our hearts. And that's why I think it is so uh, bracing. It is so bracing to hear someone say or to hear someone write, like we just did with the Apostle Paul, to hear someone say, I seek not what is yours, but you. Or to hear someone say or to hear someone write, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's bracing. Uh, because we all want to hear someone say that to us. This is how we would like to be led and cared for. And it is bracing, and it is counter-cultural, because we know deep, deep in who we are, that living that way towards others is actually what we have been made for. And so that's what I would like us to think about as we uh, talk together about this epilogue to the Apostle Paul's Fool's Speech. So Paul begins, I have been a fool. <laughs> you forced me to it. Now this, this whole letter has been an emotional tightrope of a thing. C.K. Barrett, who was one of the great 20th century scholars of the New Testament, said that he thinks that writing this letter must have come near to breaking the Apostle Paul. Now we can't know, of course, if that's true, but what we can know is the picture that emerges from the actual words that he wrote that we have been reading together now for months, and it is clear that a great deal of hurt 
has passed between Paul and his friends in that church. You might remember we talked about this months ago. One of the things that had hurt the church there was uh, some changed travel plans. Paul had told them that he was going to come and visit them. But instead of that, he wrote a letter to them. And that was hurtful to them. It was confusing to them. They did not understand why he did it. And so he open-handedly, he compellingly tried to explain why he did that to them. But far more hurt, honestly, had passed in the other direction. These other teachers had uh, come in and they had undercut Paul. And for a while there, it seemed like the whole church had turned uh, against him. He had founded that church. He'd lived there and, and bled there and sweat there and cried and laughed there for a year and a half. And now some powerful, really impressive guys roll into the city. And it seemed like they were all wondering if they wanted anything to do with their father in the faith anymore at all. And the amazing thing has been that Paul's approach here has not been to go after these other teachers. He does that in other letters. It's not like he doesn't know how to do that, but he does not do it here in this letter. In fact, Paul's approach has been largely to agree with them. He has largely agreed with them on the three main accusations that they have made against him. Yes, Paul says, yes, I'm an unskilled speaker. I know it. In a culture that values speech more highly than almost anything else, I know that I'm not that great at public speaking. That's right. And yeah, Paul says it's true. I didn't take any money from you when I lived with you, when I worked with you. I know that's not what you expected. I know that that's not what you wanted. But I had good reasons to do it, even when it makes people say horrible, horrible things about me. That is uh, what all of that stuff about Titus is. Uh, at the end of the passage that we just read together, by the way, Paul's trying to put to bed this per pernicious idea that maybe he was running some kind of a long con on Corinth. You know, like, sure, you didn't take any money from him while you were there, but maybe he was skimming off that collection that Titus was taking for the churches in Jerusalem. That was the kind of stuff they said about him. And yeah, Paul agrees with probably the most personally pointed and personally aimed of the accusations they made. Yeah, I do. I, I suffer a lot. Much more than you know, my life is filled with suffering and it's filled with weakness and it's filled with trouble. It is all true. All of it is true. And that has been pretty much the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. It's like if somebody asks you to send them a picture of yourself. <laughs> and uh, instead of uh, finding, you know, the very best photo of yourself, you know, the one where the light's right and where your hair looks good and uh, your jawline looks fine and your smile is just right, instead of doing that, you rifle through your camera roll and you find the very worst photo that you can find of yourself. Right? The one that your friend took while you were asleep <laughs> with your head rolled back to the side and your hair all crazy and your mouth hanging open and drool coming out and you sent that picture to somebody on purpose. That's what Paul did. On purpose. Like, uh, as he puts it, like a fool. Why does Paul do that? 
because he does disagree with those other teachers on one thing. And on that one thing, he could not disagree more strongly. When they say that his messy and weak life, his life that is filled with suffering, disqualifies him as a leader and as a father, he says those things actually commend him. Those are his credentials. Because suffering and trouble and weakness are the places in his life and in your life and in my life where the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life, gladly given for the life of the world, is most clearly apprehended. It is in our suffering and weakness and trouble where the love of Jesus is apprehended most clearly. We carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus, Paul wrote, so that the life of Jesus will also be made manifest in our bodies. The grace and power of God, church, the grace and power of God touch our lives at precisely the points of our weakness, at precisely the points of our trouble and suffering. God's power is made perfect in weakness, and that is absolutely true, church. It is absolutely true. And the sooner that you and I, uh, you know, believe that truth, and what I mean by believing it is not checking it off, but living in line with that truth, with, with, our, with who we are and with what we say and with what we do, the sooner we will find, I promise you, that it is the life that we have been made for. A life that is filled with joy and meaning and satisfaction that sometimes will stagger us. We'll find that life, and, and we'll find that we'll be able to do things that we, we couldn't normally do. We'll be able to do things that seem odd, right? We'll be able to disagree with others without maligning them, without turning them into evil, without building walls against them to keep them out. And we'll be able to have friends hold us accountable. We'll let friends ask us hard questions, and we won't run away from them. And we won't lash out at them like we're afraid. And we'll find that we'll be able to come si alongside people who are in trouble and suffering themselves, not always with answers, maybe never with answers but with more than enough to be able to offer solidarity and support and care, that mutuality that exists among the people of God that cannot be found anywhere else. God's power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul has been out there, and he's been out there talking like a fool, and he knows it. <laughs> he had to, he says, because the church there wouldn't uh, commend him so he had to commend himself with this crazy picture. He says in verses 11 that he's, he's not at all inferior to these very much apostles, even though he is nothing. <laughs> Paul had already told the church in Corinth that. He told them that in, in 1 Corinthians, in the first letter, in chapter 15. These are some of the most, I think, important words for us understanding who Paul really was, <laughs> and maybe some really important words for us to understand what it is to just be a Christian. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, it's where Paul famously said, I am the least of all of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul always lived with that part of his past, an awful part of his past. And it was crucial and it was a formative part of his story. And he's not ashamed to bring it up because he knows when he brings it up, he can point to the one thing that can only change people like us. So right after he says he is the least, he says, but by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul always has these two truths they're, they're battling around and rattling around in his heart. On the one hand, he was an awful guy. <laughs> he was terrible. And on the other hand, Jesus met that guy out on the road outside of Damascus and forgave him and gave him a whole new way to live in this world. Paul knows it. <laughs> Paul knows it, and the only way that those two things can be held together, the only way, church, is by grace. In other words, Paul knows that he was met by the one who would gladly spend and be spent for a guy like him. Not because he deserved it, not because he earned it, not because it looked like he had some really good potential, (laughs) but simply because he was loved by the one who would gladly spend and be spent for him. In church, it's always right, and it's always good for you and I to remember that this is also how we come face to face with the love of Jesus. Not because we're um, some really fine-looking diamonds in the rough. (laughs) Not because we've done enough to merit a glance or even a grudging acknowledgement. We are met by the love of Jesus by grace every single time. We are met by grace by the one who would gladly spend and be spent for people like me, (laughs) for people like us. And so that love, that that grace has been the animating power of Paul's life from that that point forward. Otherwise, I got to tell you, for real, verse 14 makes no sense at all. This is what Paul says in verse 14. It's like he says here... (laughs) For the third time, (laughs) I'm coming to you. (laughs) Here's what I mean about that not making sense. What in the world is Paul's motivation to do that? Why would he do that? Why would he want to walk potentially right into the lion's den again? You know, the last time he was there in Corinth in person, it it was horrific. It was horrible. He had dropped everything because he heard there was trouble there. He had dropped everything and traveled there from a place called Troas. Things were going great in Troas, by the way. He called it an open door for the gospel. It was great, but Paul left this really fruitful place to go to Corinth into the trouble only to be personally attacked by someone there and to be undefended, hung out to dry by all of his friends. It was horrible, and it caused him a great deal of pain. And he had to leave quickly before things got any worse. So why would Paul go back? (laughs) 
for that matter, why is he still writing letters like this? Why is he writing these tear-stained, wildly vulnerable letters to them? Why would he give them all of this, this ammunition that he knows could be turned back on him like a club to beat him over the head? There were churches everywhere that he had founded, that he had warm relationships with, that would be glad to see him. There were open fields all over the world, all over the known world where Paul could travel and go to the the town square or whatever and talk to pagans about Jesus. He was really good at it. And whenever he did it, it was really fruitful and I'm sure personally rewarding. So why? Why would he go back to Corinth? Why not just write this off as a loss? Why all of these sleepless nights for people he's not even sure care about him? Well, I hope you don't think that it's, it's, it's going to be that I tell you that, that Paul's a hero. <laughs> or that he uh, uh, strides saintly aside humanity like a colossus. Or that Paul has somehow reached some mystical level 11 or something like that. He he would affirm absolutely zero of those things, by the way. No, he's going back to Corinth because he's ordered his life around the love and the grace that met him on the road outside of Damascus. He had been the recalcitrant fool and someone chased him down. And so he's okay chasing after recalcitrant fools, even if he takes it on the chin most of the time when he does it. Or as he uh, puts it more theologically in another letter to another church, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is the hero of this story, church. To Paul's good, and to Corinth's good, and to your good, and to my good forever. Paul had been the object of this fierce love, and that love had been powerful enough to change a guy like him into someone vulnerable enough to chase after people so that they could also know that kind of love. That's the only reason Paul would, or that's really the only reason Paul could say, like he says, I'm going to come to you a third time, and I promise you when I come, I'm not going to be a burden to you. (laughs) I know you hate it when I don't take your money, but I don't care. Because I want you to know, not just by what I say, but how I live, that what I seek is not your things. What I seek is you. Paul can say that and Paul can live that because Jesus said it and Jesus lived it to him first. I would gladly spend and be spent for your souls, he tells them. And those aren't empty words. That's precisely what he did. And Paul could do that simply because he had first been loved when he was a wreck. And if we we follow Jesus by faith, so have we like every day. And that means that we have all that we need to begin to spend and be spent for others. We have all that we need to grow 
into the friends, into the parents, into the spouses, into the co-workers, into, if we're in a position of leadership, into the kind of leaders who serve not for their sake, but for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. If we follow Jesus by faith, church, I'm telling you, we have all that we need to do this, to use what we have for the good of the other, even in our most challenging, even in our most difficult even in our most costly relationships. We have been loved by Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. And to follow him is to slowly be made to look like him. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use uh, this word your word, that you'd use our worship together, that you would use uh, all of the means at your disposal to help us to be a people who grow in believing this thing, that we have been loved, that we have been met by grace, by one who was willing to spend all for our souls, and that to follow him in faith is to begin to look like him. It is to be called into that life. Father, help us to believe it. Help us to live it with every part of who we are and find that the promise is true, that this is life abundant, that this is full of joy and meaning. Father, we ask that you would do this so that we could grow up in our faith and mature in our faith and strengthen in our faith. And we ask that you would do this so that through us you can love this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.